and welcome to Making of Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write his dissertation and eventually to get a job. And today I'm really happy to be joined by my colleague Jenna Phillips. Uh, Jenna got her PhD in history. Yes. Uh, from Princeton. She's been a postdoc at Johns Hopkins. Uh, and this summer, I think you're going to be doing another postdoc at the beautiful Huntington Library. And uh, today we're going to be talking about Jenna's really awesome article, uh, which has just been published in the Journal of Medieval History. And this talks about how a recent discovery of a manuscript, can, what it can tell us about a particular kind of music making in the high Middle Ages. So this is about a, t a period of time called the High Middle Ages, and I have no idea what that is. Like, I know what the Middle Ages are, but I don't know what makes them high or, or <laughs> yeah, what does that mean? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I think probably the High Middle Ages are on people's um, mental horizons in the last few days, given the recent blaze, uh, unfortunately, uh, that took place at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. And um, I think that Notre Dame looms large in the imagination as a symbol of high medieval culture, technological achievement, musical, intellectual uh, achievement, um, spiritual, a spiritual center, of course. Um, and it's symbolic of the period of the High Middle Ages, a period that we think of as um, stretching from approximately the year 1000, at which point we see steady population growth mm -hmm. in Europe. Um, for about 350 years until the Black Death strikes around 1348. So, so starting in, it, after, before the year 1000, uh, you, there might have been some depopulation, but starting in the year 1000, population starts to creep up. Often, and it continues to creep up. I imagine cities get bigger, people get happier and wealthier, and all this continues to build and build and build until the Black Death you know, yes. decreases everything. Yeah, that's gone. Great. So, so what? What? When is Notre Dame begun? When does that start? How does that fit into the this uh, uh, period of which is mainly an economic story that you're telling, right? Uh, population growth, economic growth, people with full yeah, families. Exactly. You know, but it's also a technological story because um, what's driving this population growth? That sort of question that you alluded to. You know, it's very hard to pinpoint. Um, people start. Uh, creating a different kind of horse collar, which means that there's maybe more, you know, fewer oxen are always being used. A horse is a more powerful beast uh, to use for plowing. So there's sort of a more technological innovation. Um, the, the countryside, which hitherto has really been dominated by forests from Paris to Moscow, yeah. um, starts to be cleared. And this land clearance is an enormous project. Um, we call it a sarding, the project of clearing forests. This production of more arable land is an enormously slow process. It wouldn't have been felt in any one generation. But, um, you know, slowly by slowly, new settlements are appearing. Dotting Europe, they're starting to build churches. In Paris, the population growth means that the old church on the site of what we now know as Notre Dame um, isn't sufficient in size 
uh, for everyone to come together. And so its stones in the year 1160 are start to be taken apart and recycled to build a new cathedral. Oh, wow. Wow. And how, so that takes like a, a decade or so. How long does it take to take those stones and build up this, this new cathedral for this massive population boom? Yes, it's actually over a hundred years. Over a hundred years? And, and really that as well is, I think, a symbol of the um, achievement of this culture where the tenacity of whole communities, right? You have yeah. master builders who, you know, who replace each other in succession, the number of workers, the, we've talked about forests. The, yesterday, the Ministry of um, Agriculture in France estimated that 1,300 old-growth oak trees were used in the timber construction and holding just, up that roof. Whenever we talk about scale uh, uh, after the, the past hundred years, I think it's really helpful to consider that everything was shipped using animal power. That's 1,300 gigantic old-growth oaks that were taken to the Ile de France, right? Which is an island, right? (laughs) Precisely, yeah. With human muscle and animal muscle. Yeah. That is insane. That is a gigantic achievement. And all those stones, how did they... I mean, I'm not going to ask how they got all those stones all the way up there, but they did. It's it's an enormous technological achievement. And you also have to imagine how it's changing... You know, the skyline, we are now accustomed to seeing all sorts of man-made structures that dominate our skyline. But this was completely not the case. And here you have, and not just in Paris, but of course Notre Dame is a symbol, you know, for French culture today. But all over the French landscape, you're seeing these enormous cathedrals rising over, you know, generations of communities who are also coming together materially to finance these enormous projects. And they're a symbol for this uh, populace of, of optimism because it's a symbol of maybe for the first time of a human mastery over nature in in an enormous way of people rising above a single deed of their own lifetime, um, but something that could take a century and that could reach up above the human and reach up to heaven. So there's, there's this, there's this, the the symbol of the cathedral is the symbol of a great cooperative enterprise that spans generations that, 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 that represents humans trying to take the stuff around them and cultivate it and turn it into something beautiful that could potentially touch heaven. Yes. I mean, so just to, to my, to reference my own experience in, in Britain, something that we don't often sympathize with is something that's really important for people in Britain, which is the idea of cultivation. Mm. Like for them, the idea that like, like one of the big tasks of being a person is to take a plot of land and make it better. Hmm. Like to grow people, to grow food, to do improvements, to, and you know, when we read 18th century, 19th century stuff, it's easy to read that sort of stuff cynically, but it, it, it's a really big task because as you mentioned, like arable land has to be made. It has to be like it's a conscious project yeah. of all of these people over generations, clearing forests, manuring them, making sure that they're watered and well drained. And that's something that we all too often forget about. Yeah, it's yeah. an extraordinary, you know, achievement. And and then if we're thinking of Notre Dame as a, you know, a symbol of the high middle ages, it also is a school and a yeah. collection of schools starts to conglomerate there uh, and it becomes a theological a center for theological thought. So intellectuals are coming from all over Europe. In the year 1200, they get their first charter as a university. Oh, wow. And that's a big deal. That means that they One are- One of the first universities. Yeah, they're officially <laughs> a body. They, they, can, they, they officially and legally can last through generations. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, 
it's what we know as the University of Paris today. That starts in Notre Dame? It does. And wow. then, you know, sort of as it grows, it moves uh, to the left bank in the mid 13th century. A young man from the boondocks named Robert of Sorbonne yeah. uh, comes to Paris and he sort of rises up in this new intellectual community where someone even who you know doesn't have a very prestigious family can get recognition, can be educated. And he founds his own little college, which is part of this university, which we now know as the Sorbonne. Oh, wow. And this feels new, right? Is this is this when you're describing this, I get a sense of novelty that this is something that's that's unusual. Like all this optimism and growth and building, that's that's something novel. Am, am I right? Or? Yes, yes. There's enormous excitement, I think. Uh, and and it's not just intellectual because you also have Notre Dame as a musical center. Yeah. And what we call now call the you know uh, Notre Dame School of Polyphony um, is a group of innovators in music who decide to sing, take the old Gregorian chants that what we, you know, musicologists sometimes call just chant and which is traditionally sung in unison and they start layering voices around it. And, uh, they're, you know, they're creating experimenting. They're just experimenting with new ways to create something beautiful. And, and I mean, like the difference between those two worlds is, is hard to describe like a monotone monophone. Sure. Chant yeah. Right. Is, you know, it's kind of plain. Like it's just a, a group of people singing the same notes, but a polyphonic chant is like harmonies and texture and all that stuff that we get from music today. Exactly. And yeah. it's really influential, you know, for what is to come. So just as the building is a monument of Western civilization, so the musical innovation is, um, is a, a real monument. And spiritually, I think it's also symptomatic of the emotion of the time that there's a new um, emphasis on the cult of the Virgin Mary. Mm -hmm. And of course, she's symbolized in those wonderful rose windows that miraculously did not burn yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, it was real extraordinary that so many of the treasures that were in that cathedral were heroically saved from the fire. The windows, the rose windows still exist. And the, the cult of the Virgin Mary is, you know, also something that of course, she had been venerated since the early days of Christianity, but there's a really new emotive emphasis in prayer and um, a personal connection with Mary. And um, and I think that that new emphasis on praying to the feminine is also reflected in the secular music, which is more my area of specialty, yeah. um, and the lyrics, which are devoted uh, sometimes, you know, to sacred, you know, woman to marry, but also to women of, you know, of courtly love, which we'll talk about in well, a little bit. And there's also an individual orientation as well. Like when you pray to somebody and it's a motive, like what matters is you and your experience. And that's similar to to, to what we'll be getting into in the Jeu Parti, where we get two views of things, that like two individuals clashing. There's like a personality. Which, yes. Yeah. That's, yes. That's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we have we, it, Notre Dame is the symbol of the High Middle Ages for you. It has it's a great intergenerational work. It's beautiful. It has learning, uh, music, art with those windows. Mm. Is there anything that we're missing about about this 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 representative of the High Middle Ages? Well, no, I think I think that that's you know it's just a, you can see all different aspects of social and economic life converging to, you know, in this accomplishment that would take generations. Hard to imagine now, right? Yeah. We build, you know, a building in a few years so tell and me, uh, there it is. about but. how people had fun and, 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 and did 
like cultural stuff in this period because that seems to be the reason why they're they're like the high middle ages because people are i imagine having it having ever more elaborated cool complex uh, works of art and music and literature sure yeah you have this enormous cultural growth you have you know the beautiful um, artistic achievements in you know in Gothic France, which is what I work on, um, of the incredible Gothic cathedrals. You have this is the age of illuminated manuscripts coming alive with new kinds of writing technologies. Yeah. we start having um, musical notation written down not only in neumes, which uh, are a very more of a mnemonic device for remembering music, but you start having a five line staff so that okay. people can write down music, they start writing down um, songs that are not only corresponding with the church and sacred music, but we start having vernacular music that's being written down. Well, that means like music that's like pop songs. Pop songs, yes. Okay. Yeah. Wait, so what did people do before There's they There's a few down? other things that happen. We have the birth of the modern yeah. state, as you know, Joseph Strayer famously is sort of associates with this period. And um, in places like England and uh, France, you have this sacred kingship that is very much um, articulated through charismatic and powerful kings who are consolidating, um, you know, creating much more social and political cohesion. So I'm imagining in my head as I'm illustrating this, like two images, and one image is that Gothic church with like somebody singing really beautifully in it. Yeah. And the Gothic church is, what I go to them like every every inch is decorated you know all the stonework is carved and there's you know stained glass and it's 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 incredibly rich and opulent somebody's singing and then you have like a royal court which is also equally opulent but kind of messy and there's a big <laughs> fat king and they're singing and drinking and maybe singing songs that are a little bit naughty right is yes this, is this an okay i like that yeah that's that's pretty good <laughs> so i want to ask about music so you said that there there's something happening in music people are writing things down in in, in nooms well what we have is uh we have musical notation but it's more of a mnemonic so that monks who are practicing their alleluias yeah. can sort of see the shape of the melody and these little notes that are hovering above the text. Yeah. Um, but they're not fixed on the five-line staff, which more closely you know, resembles what you think of as musical staff today. And then in the 12th century, you have this Guido Evarezzo, who's a monk in Italy, uh, and he's trying to develop a more sophisticated method for teaching his students how to learn music that they've never heard before. Yeah. And so um, he and his correspondents, the people he's corresponding with, create this system of writing down notes on a staff so that even if you've never heard the song before, you can follow the precise shape of the melody. And this is really a revolution in 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 musical recording because prior to that, like long before, you know, you have a comment of someone like Isabor, Isabel of, uh, Isidore of Seville, sorry, who, um, you know, in the sixth century is saying, oh, music after it's passed, it's so transitory. It only can exist in the mind of man because we have no way of of recording it. Um, but that has really changed by the 12th century because we, they do have a way of recording it. Now, it's not a recording like a CD where you can hear 
something, but you can see the melody. I mean, that's such, that's so different from today. Like today we think, I think of a song and I think of like a Taylor Swift song and there's a recording of it and it's perfect. And like, then there's different versions of that song, but like it's something that's, that's, that's really solid and fixed. And it's mind boggling to think that, that, that before the, this time period, it would have been really hard to not, to, to learn a song that you never heard before. It, right. And I bet like songs got lost all the time. Like just to think that like like people, you know, what how many Beatles came and went before anybody <laughs> was able to to write down like you yeah. know their their music. That's that and and so we're you're 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 when we're going to be talking about music today and this is the one of these moments where at this cusp where this new recording technology lets songs get like a kind of new solidity to them. Is is that right? Probably. I mean, I don't think that we should discount how sophisticated the oral and memorial culture is prior to this and you know far more sophisticated than we are now in the first world where we are so text and recording oriented and we don't have these enormous repositories of you know oral tradition that absolutely would have defined medieval europe far far more developed highly developed oral culture nevertheless i think for historians it's incredibly exciting because suddenly this whole sound world that has never been available to us or only been available in these very oblique ways. Yeah. You know, suddenly we start to have song anthologies of hundreds of songs that are not just the sacred music of the, you know, this very small sector of, you know, clerical culture. Yeah. We start to have all of these songs in in languages like French or not just, not just Latin. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's stuff. In Italian, get... you know, or, or, you know, Aragonese or Provençal, right? We have all of these languages, which are really, that's the, the twang that you would have heard in ordinary life um, of people's mother tongues, you know? So it's this great change of these other languages becoming prestigious and prestigious enough to put them down into books. And, and you know, before at this time, right, like Latin is the language of the church. It's the language often of the state. When you get things written down, it's often written down in that. And and there's some feeling that the language that folks spoke that wasn't Latin was was crappy, right? Or, or yeah, I mean, Dante tries to talk about this when he writes the first treatise on the vernacular languages. And he's he writes around 1302, probably. And he's thinking about, you know, Latin traditionally has been considered the most... Um, noble language, the most yeah. noble tongue. But he says, but actually, I say that the vernacular is more noble because it's what we learn from our mother at birth. And it's, you know, it's the the sounds that you hear as a child, and it's the sound of poetry. And then he goes through sort of an you know, catalog of all of the different dialects of Italy, which there's dozens, yeah. and uh, and tries to say, well, which you know, which area has the mo- has the best dialect? Let me guess, the- it's da- wherever Dante's from. It might be Tuscany, you know. It's wherever, it's whatever yeah. my mom talked about. Right. And Dante then writes a bunch of really famous poems in which his, is absolutely his what then establishes Tuscan yeah. you know Tuscan as the you know most prestigious uh, language and he's reacting against a century of the 1200s when uh, old French has been the the region old you know old 
Provençal, the language of the troubadours, and Old French, the language of the trouvères, has been the heartland um, and the language in which all of the best literature uh, is being written. And, you know, romances and Dante's teacher, Brunetto Latini, travels up into northern France with his banking company, but he's also writing poetry. And then he probably writes, you know, he writes a treatise and Brunetto writes it in French. And he says, I write it, you know, because French is so noble. And Dante, his student, says, hey, (laughs) let's let's establish Italian as a little, you know, more prestigious here. And what happened? So what happened to Tuscan? Like, do people still speak Tuscan? Yeah, yeah, it came, came to be the, I mean, it's still evolved into modern Italian, but Oh, yes. so like Dante, like the language that Dante spoke, like became Yeah, yeah, Italian. yes, yes. Well, let's, 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 let's zoom over like north from Italy. Okay. Uh, and talk about those troubadours and that really, really cool French-speaking culture, because that's what your research is made about, <clears throat> Absolutely, right? yes. Like, I've heard Troubadour, like, a bit, but, like, you're, you're talking about it like it doesn't just mean a guy with a guitar at, a, at an open mic night. <laughs> like, what, or Tom Waits. Like, are, there's there's folks called Troubadour. Tell me what, what these Troubadours, and, 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 and there was another team. Troubadour, A yeah. Troubadour and a Troubadour are. Like, tell me about this. this. So, so Troubadour is the... Occitan word for a singer-songwriter, like the guy, like you just said, the guy with the guitar at the open mic night. And uh, if you speak French, trouver, you know, means to find, and troubadour and trouver are synonyms. So the idea is that uh, a troubadour or a trouver is someone who, who sort of finds inspiration to sing, and really usually what he's singing about is love. Okay. And... The troubadours are the first um, poets, the first singer-songwriters in the south of France who really establish this whole genre of music and popularize it. And we, they come from enormously heterogeneous social backgrounds. Mm. Um, so, like what? Like are 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 there like bakers hanging out with with yes, with, yes. with princes? Uh, precisely, yeah. So, someone who we say is the first troubadour um, is Guillaume the Ninth, who's the um, Duke of Aquitaine. Yeah, he has the, a ninth, so that must mean that he's he's yeah, important. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he's a crusader. He's um, he's a sings often about his love affairs with women. Uh, he. Um, Let's see. He's excommunicated by the Pope a couple times. Wait, a couple he's a times. very, you know, he's a very um, dynamic guy, yeah. and he sings songs um, about crusading and about love. And maybe he's modeling himself a little bit on someone like the biblical King David, who is both a canny, clever warrior, but also a, you know, the author of the Psalms. Um, so, but it, we don't know whether that's true, but I suspect it is. In any case, you, he sort of sets up this new model of kingship of a of a male who's both a political leader and a warrior, and he's also a musical guy. And at his court, he brings together, he becomes a patron, a great patron of musicians. And so while he's up at the top of the feudal pyramid, if you want to call it that or think about it like that, um, he also is the patron of um, a musician like Bernard of Ventadorn, who is the son of a baker, like oh. you said. His his mother was probably a baker. His father was probably a foot soldier. I mean, we can't always completely trust the little sort of mini biographies of these guys, which we call their vidas. But, uh, and he writes 
uh, some of the most popular top of the charts of the 12th century songs. Um, and he himself finds patronage in different courts across Europe. He travels to England and um, is in the court of Henry II and of Elver of Aquitaine. I mean, this uh, is just, this is so, like, it's so romantic. I can't believe that this is a real thing. So we have we have a crusading king right. who also thinks it's really cool to sing songs. Yeah. Who then patronizes, like, this like hard scrabble baker's son who then travels around Europe singing songs to oh, what the songs are about love and battle and and affairs and yeah here i i have the text here of one of bernard's most popular songs oh great uh and it's called convey la lautzetta mover when i see the lark soar or when i see the lark <laughs> don't laugh this is a no i mean it's beautiful of course it's when you see the lark soar yeah yeah well so this is an example this is really the high kind of elite uh troubadour okay. kind of culture and we'll, we can talk about less elite stuff as well but he says when i see the lark beating his wings for joy against the sun's the sun's ray until he forgets to fly and lets himself fall for the sweetness which goes to his heart. Alas, such great envy comes over me for those I see rejoicing that I marvel that my heart doesn't melt from desire. Alas, I thought I knew so much about love and I know so little. And he goes on to complain how he's so powerless when he has caught in the lover's gaze. Wow. And, so, but the, and that song, by the way, is copied in something like... 40 manuscripts it's uh we find the same melody it's translated he's writing in um in provencal yeah. in occitan right and uh which are like frenchish dialects or yeah, yeah it's a southern french okay. uh, southern french dialect um and it's sort of a literary dialect that yeah. is exist you know that the troubadours are using um it's that song is translated into the northern French dialects like Picard and uh, and copied in dozens of manuscripts and the melody is copied and then there's other songs composed to the same melody. It's a very popular song. Right? So, so this no, is the invention of romantic love. Here. Yeah, it's a romantic and, and pop song. Like the other thing that that, that, that's, that teaches us how to feel yeah. romantic love, the pop song. Yeah. So not only do you have these, these uh, uh, high-flying, high-status people singing songs and composing songs and writing them down. Right. You have other people copying them and learning them. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. is, that is, and how long does it, like, right now, like a pop song lasts for about a week. How long does this song become, remain popular for? Is that one of those questions that makes, that makes historians of music grind their teeth at night? Oh, absolutely, you? yes. Okay. Totally put your finger on it. I mean, it's incredibly hard to know. We know very little about exactly what contexts most of these songs are performed in. Yeah. And in fact, many of the troubadour, you know, musical corpus is um, written down scores of years after they're okay. composed. And so we don't have a lot of autograph copies or, of manuscripts that we think were probably we don't in have the, the hand set lists of... from from the from the performances. Right. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, but certainly we have song anthologies that are being made in northern France in the say the twelve sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties that are containing songs that are being con they're from contemporary troubadours and they also contain um, songs of the troubadours from you know, 80 years earlier. Okay. Wow. Wow. And, and so I, I, I'm going to guess something from, from my, 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 my knowledge of, of, of history at this time. And my guess is 
that these troubadours, all men, right? This, like, so many things in history, this is probably completely no, male dominant. No? It's not. No. No, there's, uh, there aren't a lot of them, but they're called the trobarites, the female troubadours. And uh, we have a number of their songs, some of them with melodies. We have female trouvères. We have women's songs. It's a very interesting how heterogeneous all of this really so they were fe- and were they le- oh, so some of the troubadours like were body they, they they sing like i bet that like there's some people who sing about love is like a lark but there's other who's who probably sing about getting drunk and were, were, <laughs> were the were the women able to sing body songs too or oh or, yes really yeah. they yeah. weren't just they weren't just singing about like how they love the virgin mary all the time <laughs> they do sing about that but uh yeah there's um there's a whole bunch of different genres of uh, medieval song. So some of them, like that, what we just described, we would say that's probably a like a courtly song, like a chanson courtoise. Yeah. You know, and that's traditionally considered at the top of the sort of a hierarchy, an informal hierarchy of a medieval you know, vernacular music. Yeah. That's um, like the, the concept album of... of yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, it's the thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's the concept. They're definitely, you know, being performed in courts. And it's, um, you know, they sing of a refined love okay. uh, that they call fenamour, which they don't use the word courtly love. That's yeah. a invention of the 19th century. But uh, fenamour, which just means pure love, a refined pure love. love. And it's, you know, it's love directed to a woman uh, a very high status. And do you think that that love is going to be consummate, reciprocated and consummated? If, if, if my love for Taylor Swift will, you know, if it, you, I, I, don't, I wouldn't imagine getting drunk and, 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 uh, you know, rolling and with, with, with the pigs in the barn with Taylor Swift, I would, I would approach her as a, you know, a holy being. Yeah. Yeah. Right? You, yeah. It's, these are women who are put up on a pedestal. Yeah. I mean, it's a reflection of a certain kind of social reality in which, yeah. uh, and, you know, in which women can inherit, certain women can inherit land and be oh. very powerful and therefore are desirable you know, making the right marriage alignment can re- reward the man with great land. And I think that this is part of a social reality that's being reflected in some of the courtly love songs. And so, But so the, some women were, were able to sing Fenimore songs. Oh, well, mostly the songs of Fenimore are in a male voice. That's okay. a great question. Uh, however, we have many songs in... A female voice so you know you have like the chanson courtoise we have chanson pieuse pious songs like you just mentioned the yeah. virgin mary and some of them are very funny because we have examples where you know they're saying oh you know du sedan right sweet lady marie of gracious kind heart and you know show mercy on my on me on poor me and then sometimes in the margin what am i Musicology teachers on the found this manuscript where it says this song can be sung and addressed either to the Virgin Mary or to your girlfriend, and so you know, <laughs> so that's useful. <laughs> um, but then we have songs that are sort of lower down on the spectrum, and so we have things like these really body songs called pastorelles, which are. Uh, pastoral. They're Cor- corny shepherds, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, no. The shepherd, well, the shepherd maybe, but it's a song also about social class. It's about yeah. a sexual or seductive encounter between a knight and a shepherdess. Oh. Um, and she sometimes rebuffs him and sometimes she succumbs to him and it sort of glorifies a rape culture, essentially. Really? 
I, it sounds uh, like K-dramas, like Korean dramas have, like, they're always about a rich man and a poor old girl or a poor man and a rich girl and like they fall in love or they don't. But so these pastorals are telling the story again and again of, of, of rich, rich, rich people seducing poor people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, the, you, the listeners aren't going to see your expression, but you've made like a, like exasperated, like expression about oh, the well, they're very interesting they're interesting sources i mean but they yeah they tell you a lot about the expectations of i mean you can see from the contrast of how women are treated if it's a woman of elite status mm-hmm. and if it you know and how they're viewed by the same men uh if it's a woman of lower social status and the sexual availability is con- you know considered to be very different uh at least in this sort of fictionalized world of music if, like elite women, you can address them as in the same way that you would address the Virgin Mary. The poor woman is 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 her, she? They call her her Marion, Marion, you know, and that's where we get this. Um, if you remember from Robin Hood, you have Robin and Marion. Yeah. Those are the stock figures of the medieval pastoral, where Marion is always the object of the male gaze of the ride, the knight riding on his destrier, and Robin is her shepherd boyfriend who isn't happened to be around to protect her. Oh wow! Um, wow. Well, and so you're you have a, uh, have done some research about a particular kind of 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 song style, right? Yes. Yeah, so I come to all of this through my love of what I consider to be the best and most interesting of all genres of medieval French music, which is the jeu parti. The jeu parti. That's like I. It's it's so nice having like bits of French dropped in here. The jeu parti. <laughs> it makes it sound very classic. The jeu parti. Tell me what the jeu parti is. So jeu partis are. Uh, have traditionally been seen by French scholars as, you know, not really worthy of a lot of study. Yeah. I think this is changing a little bit. There's been some interesting work coming out on them. There, It's a kind of a song debate, and they are sung between two interlocutors, yeah. uh, usually debating some sort of question of love, courtly casuistry, ethics in sexual behavior and they usually pit these two perspectives against each other where often one singer will take the side of a more noble approach to sexual relationships or romantic relationships while the other one is more dirty and pragmatic yeah je parti is interesting uh the etymology of the words Incidentally, well, it just means a jeu is a game, and yeah. a partie is sort of a divided game or a game in two parts. Okay, um, it's where we get our modern word jeopardy. Really? Yeah, and uh, so you know, eight centuries before that was a televised quiz show, people were performing jeu parties, also um, with these two singers in front of an audience, uh, and they're fantastic historical sources because unlike any other genre of medieval song they they name the people name one another so i would say to you oh brendan yeah let me you know sing to me of a jeu parti uh about you know on the following topic you know what kind of a man i should choose do i want one who's really wealthy and smart and interesting and courtly and by the way he's also good looking but he is terrible on the battlefield he does not have prowess <laughs> you know he's yeah. not brave yeah and then you would say to me oh lady jenna this is such a wonderful question and I'm really delighted to debate it with you um obviously you should choose the one who is uh who is kind and courtly and gracious because 
how otherwise you'll get so bored of that guy. So so there's so 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 we have this situation where people are singing about a debate in front of an audience. How do we yeah. know who wins? Oh, it, like, great question. Yeah, we we don't. Th- this is the problem. Well, how do they know who wins? Like how like like it's a competition. So how do they? How do the people at the time know? Like, is there a judge? Do they in clap the f- a lot? Like, do they throw tomatoes at the bad bad person? Like, do, do is it like professional wrestling and 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 they know who's the winner from the outset? Like, what do they do? Um. Yeah, I would love to know all those details. They. They name judges in the last two stanzas, which are oh. called envoys, right? Yeah. So they're, it means that means to send off. So they're sending off their verses, and they name two other people who are presumably there in the room. Yeah. And so I would say, uh, you know, and usually they name people who seem to be of sort of high status or who are revered in some way. Um, and so, you know, who's your, your advisors? Tom LeCure? Yeah. Like, I would say, like, oh, you know, Tom LeCure. You're so wise. Please <laughs> adjudicate in my favor. And, you know, my uh, d- dissertation advisor um, at Princeton was Bill Jordan. And you would say, oh, you know, Bill Jordan, in this case, you'll see that I am, my points have been far superior to Jenna's. And so please adjudicate. And so we know from other sources, so in none of the manuscript are there judgments written down. We okay. have all of these texts. We have about 185 oh, wow. written down in manuscripts. Yeah. About two-thirds of them we have with music notations. We know what melodies they're being sung to. Um, And most of them are attested in multiple manuscripts. So we know that they're popular enough, you know, these are not just like one-off things. People are clearly copying them uh, and maybe performing them in multiple places. Um, But we don't have any judgments. And so we know who they call on as Mm -hmm. judges, but we don't know what judgments were rendered. Okay. Okay. I mean, it, what's what's really fascinating to me is that it, it seems that there's kind of a, a a a lost game of debating about a subject. Like if you look through, if you if you do reading in in, in like 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th century stuff, you always see these questions of of you know. Uh, there's a, a book called The Complete Angler, um, which is uh, a, a great literary text about fishing. And a lot of it is framed as an argument between people about whether it's better to farm or to fish yeah. or to hunt. Yeah, yeah. And like they go on these long, you know, flowery arguments about like, oh, fishing is the best. Oh, no, hunting is. And so there's this like lost genre of of, of the elaborated argument, you know. De- oh, yeah. And, yeah. and this is one of those examples, but in song. And you have you have you've brought one for us yes, today. Yes. We're not going to sing it, right? No. <laughs> but you have had it sung. Um yeah, yeah, there's this particular Je Parti has two different melodies in different manuscripts. Uh um and some of them are more singable than others, but um yeah, I had a class that I taught with students singing them and it was great fun. Oh wow. Um, wow. So do what do we want to do, I think do, do, I think do, we should so, so that people can understand how they This sound. is yeah. this is the 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 question is would you prefer your lover to be passively pretty and full of intelligence or passively uh, passively intelligent and extraordinarily beautiful? Yes. This does sound like the sort of debates that they're probably having out on the quad on the undergrads. <laughs> yeah, I So should one I One thing that's cool is how some of the questions are very, you know, enduring human questions. <laughs> so so there's two characters. There's Brutel. I'll and, take Brutel. And, and Grivelier? Yeah, Grivelier. Grivelier. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So so here, I'll, I'll begin. I'll be Jean Brutel. He yeah. was a very famous uh, 
singer at Trouvert in the city of Arras, which is this northern French city where they have a sort of poetry guild. And he was called a poetry guild. Yes. Yes. It was uh, where probably a lot of these are being performed. And uh, anyway, so I'll be Jean Bretel. And Arras is 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 really the. Uh, uh, ground zero of the Jou Parti, right? Like it's 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 yeah, that's a great way of putting it. It is where it, it is where Jou Parti is 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 popular. They, that's what people have focused on, I think. And this wonderful manuscript that I've just published a paper about, uh, I think, shows that Jou Partis are really being performed in a lot of places. Okay. Um, but Arras is a lot of the people who sing them can be associated with Arras. So that's certainly, yeah, maybe I love the way it's kind of like put Atlanta, it, ground zero. It's, yeah. it's like Atlanta and like Southern rap. Like a lot of people go to Atlanta, <laughs> like there's a particular musical style associated with it, but it, but it dribbles oh, okay. out around the area. Okay. Okay. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so, so Bertel, let's, 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 let's begin your, your, uh, uh, uh discourse. Right. Grivile, shed your wisdom on this dilemma, on this je parti. If you love loyally and are loved in return, which would you prefer? Either that the woman who you love should be reasonably beautiful and endowed with exceptional intelligence, or that she should be reasonably intelligent and exceptionally beautiful. Sire Jahan, a lovely gift you offer me, and I've chosen well. In order to live longer without becoming jealous of her, I wish that her affections be founded in good sense, since she is pretty enough, sense doesn't provoke suspicion. Beauty has a more treacherous heart. It contains pride, which often turns great joy into great torment. Crivile, beauty does not listen, nor does it hear or see, I tell you, nor has it any thought of bringing pain to a lover. Yet very great cleverness is suspect of felony and responsible for pride and treason. And in this way, you lose out. Beauty, meanwhile, spurs you on to love passionately. My lord, know for a fact that it was great beauty that swelled Lucifer with pride and led to his wicked fall to hell. It wasn't a great mind that damned him. With the mind we perceive pleasure. Assuming my lady is known to be good-looking, let her have a keen mind, all the better to love. Crivile, how badly you respond, I promise you. <laughs> the King of Navarre knows it. He defended the right opinion that some dismissed. But a great fine beauty is always in season, without fail. For a great beauty, one loves more firmly and more keenly. It beats intelligence a hundred to one. Sir, I've never seen you speak like such a barbarian. If a king spoke words of folly, would you wish to do the same? Good sense was never yet refused except by a madman. Love gives you such a boon that once you fall in love, you see beauty in the object of your love. For this reason, I will take intelligence. And then I address Dragon, a guy in the audience. Dragon, you judge us. I'll say it, and it's the truth. It's not for the wisdom of Solomon that one loves and falls in love with Marion. It's for her youthful beauty. One doesn't love her wisely. Uh, Demoiselle Ode, yeah, who, who's, who's another judge, hear me. I say that he is so shown false who holds this opinion. Good sense endures until the end, but beauty in right judgment is as fleeting as a gust of wind. That's, that's, so this would be sung. That's fantastic. That's really, uh, 
<laughs> Thank you for reading that with me. <laughs> I mean, thanks. It was, it's, a, it's a great play. And this is, what's, what's, what's also really fascinating is that I've seen these debates as well. In my, in my, the people I study in 18th century Britain, people, there's debating clubs where people are, are perform, performing these debates. Yeah. And uh, a question of what's more, what's more good in a wife, intelligence or beauty, is also something that they stage. We often hmm. don't have the actual debates, but we know that, that that sort of question is something that's put to people. And this reminds me, you know that 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 song, like, uh, if you want to be happy for the rest of your life, get an, uh, make an ugly girl your wife. You know, <laughs> you know that old 1950s song? I do, I know this song. is like the, 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 the high medieval version of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that they're, you know, grappling with these questions that, you know, now we might say, well, is this political correctness, you know, but they're trying to think really closely about emotion and about social etiquette and, yeah. and, and they're doing it in a very sophisticated way through, even if not all the poetry is very good. And that's one reason why they've been overlooked. You know, they're, they're thinking through this in a fairly sophisticated method and performing it. And then we call on other people and they are probably extemporizing. And that's probably that the judges are probably extemporizing. That's probably why we don't have written down what the judgments say, because yeah. we know from other texts that uh, people were responding yeah. and that the judges were expected to sort of come up with a judgment and they were each supposed to then render, you know, who they agreed with. Now, how did the judges come to an agreement? We don't know. Maybe they didn't. But it's a very formalized way of thinking through, you know, pretty deep problems about love and romantic relationships and sex and yeah, ethics. And Sometimes within, they discuss, you know, your career questions. I mean, they're not only about about love. But. Within the what's 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 really curious is within this one song, there's a ton of different explanations for what a good relationship between a man and woman should be. Right, like yeah. you, you can. There's like a dozen different ways to be in this one song. People are offering different. Like they, 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 they you know, a, a love should be amorous. It should be passionate. No, 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 no. Love, love is something that itself creates a, a, a attraction. Yeah, like yeah, if, exactly. If they are lovable, if they have a good mind, you will love them. Like that's, you, you can sense in a way that that, that is rare in historical sources. People grappling with a real human problem. Yeah, that's absolutely. They, these are a good source. Why? The French ignored them because they're bad poems? <laughs> the, you know, French philologists in the 19th century were interested in looking at things like the Chanson de Roland, like the Song of Roland, yeah, you know, the, the great epics. And yeah. je are full of sort of body references. They were considered, uh, you know, one early editor of them, he who made magnificent editions, Jean Roy. Uh, nevertheless, he calls them mediocrities. Um, so they were sort of overlooked. Uh, and But as historical sources, as I say, I think that they're wonderful because, you know, here we have the names of the people singing them. We can approximately date when they would have sung them. This is completely unlike other genres of true ver music because we just don't know who was in the room but here yeah. we have all these names we have Grivile, we have Jean Bretel we have the people that they're naming as judges we know that he names a woman as yeah, his so judge woman is a, yeah. Um, yeah and it's really interesting because in this case uh, one reason I love this poem aside from the fact that I like the subject matter um, is that he he names this woman and that in several manuscripts in which this je partie is recorded Demiselle Eude is named as the judge oh wow but in other manuscripts it's a guy who's oh. named. And so I think what that tells us is that, 
you know, this song is being adapted to different performance contexts and that different judges could be named. But if, even if the same je parti is, you know, being performed over and over again, because it's such a good one, yeah. <laughs> uh, that, you know, they might say, oh, hey, let's have a guy this time be our judge. Wow. And, and what, so, so you say that you you really love these. How did you find out about this genre? Like, and, and what 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 do you love about it? Are you do you, at the dinner table? Do you have do you, do you like debates or you know, like, do you? Well, yeah. What 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 about it appeals to you? Like, I can see how it's a great historical source, but like you you like it. Like, tell me why you like it. Um, well, so I started out doing my dissertation research on uh, Robert of Artois, who is the the sort of vicious count of Artois uh, in the 13th century, in the later second half of the 13th century. And he is a crusader, he's a warrior, he uh, isn't a very likable fellow, but he is a patron of the arts. And I started out by working on his um, his archives yeah. um, of his uh, many of his fiscal accounts and sort of tracing his wars. And then I got really interested in sort of trying to understand also if there's anything that could give me clues about the psychology of the period yeah, um, and what's going on behind, you know, these decisions to fight or to yeah. come back from war. And it turns Some, out Sometimes when you sit down with sources for a really long time, you get a really clear picture of like one bit, like right. how much cheese they ball. <laughs> yeah. But then there's this like lingering sense, like you want to know how it felt to be a person at that time. You want to know like the mentality, the the, yeah, exactly. the the soul of the time. And it's often you just can't tell because there's no sources for it. Right. But then Well, so Robert the Second of Artois, who lives from twelve Forty-eight to 1302, uh, he dies in this great battle, the Battle of Cartrailles, in which the French chivalry is sort of massacred in a disaster on the Flemish battlefield by Flemish like peasants, essentially, yeah. uh, infantry. Um, uh, maybe not peasants isn't quite right, but uh, not anyway, nobles. <laughs> yeah, a, a mix, a mix. And so it's a big shock to all of Europe. Anyway, so he has this sort of dramatic bookends of his life, but during his life, it's this uh, golden age of theater, musical production, jeu parties, music, um, and it's all centered in Arras, which is the capital of this appanage of Artois, the county of Artois, which is where he is the, um, the count. And so even while we have this culture of violence on the one side, which is very much in the forefront, um, his whole life is defined certainly going through the fiscal accounts by raising money for armies, yeah. um, raising money for tournaments, going on crusade, going to conquer Sicily, coming back. You know, he's um, it's really a life defined by war. Nevertheless, he's paying his jongleurs uh, to come along with him to entertain the troops. And then when he's back in Arras, uh, they're having... You know, during this period, during his lifetime, there's just hundreds of jeux parties being composed wow. and sung by all to people of all walks of life, by the bourgeois, by uh, professional trouvères who are moving between bourgeois and aristocratic milieu, by the aristocrats themselves, by women aristocrats are singing some jeux parties. So it's a genre that obviously is being um, embraced by different walk people in different walks of life and different genders, and. Uh, it's so extraordinary to hear what they think, what they're thinking about, and how they're thinking about these questions, and in their own voices, you know, things that 
we don't have a lot of other sources that can you know give you this kind of personal views on and so many of them and arguing about like it's it's it is really a fascinating fascinating story source uh, so i have a question okay. and i'm just going to say tell me about Lambeth Palace Archives, <laughs> 16. Oh, good. Okay, I'm excited that we're going to get to that. Yes. Yeah. So uh, this. What is Lambeth Palace Archives, 1681? Okay, this is a wonderful manuscript, which is a. And a manuscript, just just for folks who don't know, is it means something literally written by hand. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, in this particular case, uh, it is a scroll. Um, it's not a, a codex or a you know a big book where which is. The place where we find most medieval music and yeah. medieval texts um, usually appear in codices, uh, but this is so a, it's like a big whopping scroll, like like that you no, see in video games. No, it's a wonderful little uh, four and a half inches wide, uh, five feet long. Yeah, five feet long and yes. four and a half inches and wide. And so, you know, you have to imagine something that's a little wider than a modern iPhone that could be held in the hand. I mean, now we scroll through texts all the time, but this is, we really can scroll through a wait, text. Wait, so you wouldn't, um, would you unroll it or would you be able to like, you know, uh, un, un, like like keep it cylindrical as you as you read through it? It seems like you could keep part of it cylindrical and then it sort of unwinds and falls you know, falls over itself as you read it. Or we have iconography that tells us how people are using these things. And yeah. so sometimes you see them unfurled quite a long way um, or maybe par- partially uh, and you're sort of unfurling it as you read. So you could keep this in your hand as you were singing the Jeu Parti. So this manuscript contains old French songs. Yeah. And it contains seven, and several of them are Jeu Parti. Uh, one of them is the Jeu Parti that we just oh. read. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, there's no reason you should know this, but it's totally weird and cool to find old French song lyrics on a scroll. Yeah. Because... This is a big mystery and open question in for medieval musicologists and medieval historians is how are song texts or how is sort of oral culture that is we know is being written down, but how is it being moved around the place? To what extent is it being written down? Yeah. To what extent does it exist in sort of a mnemonic culture, you know, a culture where people are memorizing everything? Um, and we have a lot of imagery of people who are composers like Guillaume de Machaut or people who we see pictures of them illustrated writing on scrolls themselves. And so we think that they must have been in use a lot, but we don't have almost any examples or very few limited. I think William Payton counted like 12 scrolls that have lyrics on them from the Middle Ages or from the High Middle Ages. Uh, They're very, very few in number that we have. And this particular role at Lambeth Palace uh, was there and it was an edition of it was made in 1917 by this uh, Finnish philologist. Yeah. Uh, and then it was sort of forgotten until John Haynes, who's a wonderful musicologist, published about it sort of in passing. And he said, this is a great example of how a trouvere might carry his lyrics around with him. And I just want to jump in because because there's something at stake here that, that that I want to draw out. Yeah. And what's at stake is that we don't know. Getting a sense of that 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 mentality, what it's like to be there, is really hard. And if you just have the lyrics in a book, like written 80 years later, you don't exactly know if 
this is just some nerd who 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 had a passing fancy for these two parties, <laughs> or whether it was actually popular and used. But having them in a scroll, a scroll that can be held in the hand, is 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 suggestive of the fact that it's actually being used. That people are writing these 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 song lyrics down outside of Eros. In, in, in other places so that they can hold them in the hand and sing them. It's 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 something to be used, right? Yeah. Rather than absolutely. something to be kept. Yes, yes. It's exactly that's exactly right. It's definitely it's been designed ergonomically for you know, either for ease of use or for ease of transportation, right? Yeah. That would be the other reason why you would have something that could, you know, easily be rolled up and fit in a bag. Um, most of the other song collections the chansonniers are sort of like you said luxury object many of them are beautifully illuminated they would have cost a great deal they would have been made for aristocratic patrons or people who had a lot of money to invest in this beautiful book and copy all the music and so forth um so this is a really wonderful thing it's in old french but it's in london what is it doing there yeah uh it has they don't speak french in london of course they do. Of course oh. they do. Remember, we have, we're post-1066. They have uh, the aristocracy, the, a lot of the upper classes, the bourgeois mercantile classes are speaking French. Oh. They're doing business with northern France. And in the 1300s, they form a poetic society in London based on the one at Arras. Its statutes are based on it. Chaucer eventually will be a member of it. And that's one plausible uh, explanation for what this role was doing is that they are sort of modeling themselves on the continental poetic societies and that they might be performing je parties in London. Wow. So this is, this is a, a smoking gun that shows us that these <laughs> things were actually being in use. Well, this is, this is, this is really fascinating. Um, Thanks, thanks very much, Jen, for, for, <laughs> Thank you so for, much, for being with us and giving us a, 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 a great example of, of Jew Party. Is there anywhere that people can listen to the Jew Party? Like, are there any recordings of them or or, or music from this era in general? Like, well, there's a lot of it? wonderful... Yeah, there's a great deal of... Certainly you can find lots of recordings of... Uh, you know, medieval trouvères and troubadours. Christopher Page's group, Gothic Voices, is one very um, beautiful, sort of famous group out of um, Cambridge, England. Um, Elizabeth Ava Leach at Oxford, I believe, is doing some exciting projects of doing recordings in Old French of some jeux parties. I think you can find them on YouTube. And uh, yeah, that's currently... Great. We'll, we'll, we'll put some links to these things in the show notes oh, in case here, in case uh, uh, the listeners are interested. Well, well thanks again, uh, 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 Jenna. Um, thank you to everybody who listens, especially the in-laws. Um, in-laws <laughs> like the show for some reason. If you are an in-law, tell other in-laws about the show. Uh, uh, it really helps. <laughs> uh, if you like us, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, do all those things that you do with, with, with pieces of media that you like. Uh, final thanks to Duncan Barton, who did our image, and Jonathan Lear, who made our music. We'll be back next Tuesday with an interview guest to be determined. Thanks very much again. Thank you.